0: Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios, which are on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford. Uh, so, a few months ago, Thomas M. Wright's The Stranger featured as part of this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. And it's now screening at local, uh, select local and independent cinemas for the next two weeks. And later this it, month, it will be streaming on Netflix. The film is based on Kate Kiriko's uh, true crime book, The Sting. Wright's film tells of an unlikely friendship that forms between two strangers, Henry, played by Sean Harris, a man worn down by a lifetime of physical labour who is brought into a blue collar crime organisation, and his ally, Mark, played by Joel Edgerton, a rough but supportive guide through this organisation. However, neither are exactly what they appear to be, and despite their bond, there is something altogether more sinister waiting to be uncovered. And I'm joined here in the studio by the writer and director of The Stranger, Thomas N. Wright. Thomas, welcome to Primal Screen.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to have to get the name of that DVD store. Oh yeah, um, picture search. Gary Waddell, (laughs) who's the lead in Pure Shit, actually uh, plays one of those central kind of crime figures in the... In the film, does he? Yeah, oh, I didn't he's, even he's know that. An legend. <laughs> what Herodelle. a funny crossover! He's got Warren Ellis for his number one fan <laughs> apparently. So he's he's a, he's a interesting cat.
0: Yeah, for sure. I honestly, pure shit. Alongside your film, The Stranger, was were two of my favourites of the festival. Um, I had not seen the classic um, from 1975, but wow, what a ride! I tried to
1: find it and I couldn't find it. I yeah. couldn't make the session at the festival, so yeah, yeah
0: it was. It. Yeah, I've been recommending it to heaps of people, and then I started. Feeling bad because I was like, How are they going to find this? But Picture Search in Richmond, (laughs) $4 for a a week rental. Fantastic. Check it out. (laughs) So, uh, Thomas, in a recent interview with The Guardian, uh, you expressed some hesitation after reading uh, Kate Kiriko's The Sting, um, and your partner shared some of your concerns, saying, I don't want you to do this. Um, I know where you'll go in relation to your adaptation. Of the book, Um, now that the stranger is completed and it's out in out in the world, um, can I ask where did you go?
1: Well, you know, I think she was also coming straight out of Acute Misfortune, and I I, (laughs) I didn't and I didn't actually take a break between the two films, so I so I finished Acute Misfortune. Joel was one of the first people to see. Acute Misfortune, because I'd been talking to Joel about playing one of the parts in his film Boy Raised. Yeah. And um, during that conversation, Acute Misfortune was greenlit, so it, it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible anymore. But he said to me, being very generous, um, which he really is, um, you know, when you finished your film, send it to me and I'll take a look at it. And so two years later or whatever it was, I sent him the, the finished version of Acute Misfortune, and, and he called me back that day and just said, I want to find something to to do with you. Um, whether it's us writing something together or producing something for you or um, you writing and directing me and something, whatever it is, let's just start this conversation and um, see where we land. And, um, and really, really quickly um, came Kate's book, The Sting, mm. um, which Joel had had the option on I think for about a, a year and a half and I think he'd been really um, struggling to work out what, what exactly to do. With yeah, this, right. and when he saw acute misfortune, I think he felt that there was a, like a kind of just this innate alignment um, between the two, and I think he was probably right um, mm. with that. They they followed on from one another. They're very very different films, I feel, but there there's a certain thread there um, about complex psychology, complex relationships, a kind of sense of um, threat.
0: Mm. Or, um,
1: but 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 a lot of complex other things that are that are playing out in those two stories. Um, so he he gave me the book to read, and yeah, when I read it, I just thought I just can't I can't do this. Mm. Acute Misfortune was a was a tough film to make, and it was very clear that this was going to be um, much more difficult. Um, the weight of it was was um, awful, yeah. and, and it was some small insight into what it would actually be to do this sort of work, which would be you know just. So much more severe, mm-hmm. uh, I had a sense I felt a tremendous sense of moral responsibility um, to get it right and to make a film that uh, myself and everybody who worked with me on the film could stand behind, but also that an audience could come to with a with a sense of conscience um, you know to to confront some really really tough questions about human nature mm-hmm. and some unanswerable things that are just there with human beings. Um, about our capacity for violence, um, mm. which is just this terrible fact that just seems to state and restate itself again and again and again on a daily mm. basis. And, um, you know, for, for all of us from our journey from being little children to being adults, we we learn our own ways to develop that. And here I was writing a film about a central character who had no way to negotiate that because he was placed in such proximity to, to that to that sense of violence, that meaninglessness.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so um, it, it took us all to some very difficult places. I have yeah. to say for myself, um, certainly for Joel, Sean and Jada Alberts, who plays mm. the main detective, Kate Rylet, um, mm. in the film, um, it, it, it was a profoundly um, difficult film to make. But there's, you know, there's the material on one hand and then there's also the filmmaking on the other And um, all films exist in a tension between their resources and what they're setting out to achieve. And we didn't want to just make a good Australian film. We wanted to make a great film um, on an international standard. Mm. We wanted to make a great film if it was, you know, 40 years ago or 50, whenever, just to try to find the timeless elements of the story and and on a craft level, you know, make something that was... um, of the highest international standard and, and that, that applies its own pressure. So the concert of all those things with this film felt a little like getting pulled apart by <laughs> horses at certain,
0: yeah.
1: at certain points. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, uh, I can imagine. You know. But,
1: but you know, to see the reception that it's had, obviously we premiered at Cannes earlier this year and we were the first Australian film in Uncertain Regard in eight years after an incredible lineage of mostly Indigenous cinema, actually mm. um, Charlie's Country was the last film there, and before that, my mate Warwick Thornton and his film Samson and Delilah, um, uh, Ten Canoes,
0: yeah.
1: um, Bedevil, yeah, wow. and and I've been since Turmela.
0: So yeah. we're a very
1: unusual film to premiere in that forum as a kind of really yes. we're, we're really a pure psychological uh, crime film really um so no but to see the reception that it's that it's had and the way that it's been able to um reach out and affect people and affect audiences and and the life that it's having as well as obviously the fact that we're about to go out to 224 million people in two (laughs) weeks you know i mean it's yeah it's and i think it's actually i might be wrong here but i think it's the first it's actually the first time that netflix has bought an independent australian film and and re- Rebadged it as a Netflix film. We're now a Netflix film, and um, so we're foregrounded on the platform. And um, yeah,
0: that's amazing because I I was one of the um, lucky audience members to be at the IMAX screening as part of MIF. Um, I think it was maybe the um, premiere like the Victorian premiere for it. Was,
1: it was it was our it was our the Australian premiere. premiere. Yeah. It was actually the first screening after the, after the screenings at Cannes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a. That was a tremendous uh, – you were talking before about the, tr- the craft of the film. Mm. Seeing your film, The Stranger, on IMAX screen was such uh, an experience. And we'll talk – I do want to talk a lot about the sound design and the soundtrack later because there's so much going on there. Um, but it really was an amazing experience. So, yeah, very exciting that it is going to be available on Netflix because that just opens up your film to – A much wider audience. Um, I'm maybe just a cinema fiend, but I do encourage people while they've got the opportunity here in Melbourne to see it for. I think it's the next two weeks. It's on for the
1: next two weeks in cinemas. That's right. Yeah, and I would say the same. I mean, I think it's going to be. It's going to be. The film is. The film is. very pressurized. It's a claustrophobic mm. experience. It makes its way into your body. I think. Yes. People talk about it as a very physical experience, and I think that's going to be that's going to be really marked when people watch it at home. Mm. But to watch it in a cinema and to and to have that collective experience of like listening to people breathe when they watch this film, listening to a listening to an audience breathe when they watch this film, um, is 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 a physical experience. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a great shared experience, I think. And I believe in cinema very much um, like that as well.
0: So, yeah, yeah, well, I love the fact and I definitely had that experience of um, even though I watched The stranger in IMAX by myself, I was of course surrounded by a sold out myth crowd. And I love that you start the film with a breathing exercise of sorts with that narration about um, uh, almost like a meditative narration, but it definitely had a a sinister edge to it. I remember going into the theatre and being... um, Knowing knowing a bit about the subject material, I'm being worried that I, it was going to be an exceptionally violent film. And it was interesting. I ended up rewatching your film again last night. And look, I mentioned before that it's based on a true crime book, um, The Sting. Um, and I think rewatching it, it was so interesting to take apart the formal elements. And I'd love to dive deeper into that because of how you're approaching this material um, you know this the sting is is a book that details the undercover investigation of um, daniel Morcom's killer and there were concerns raised by the Morcom family about your film in fact they um when it came out they called upon it to be boycotted there is of course whenever you're approaching this material this tremendous responsibility um, and amongst the criticism, there was a comparison made with Justin Kurzel's film Nitrum about which is about the Port um, Point Arthur uh, massacre. And it's interesting kind of reflecting on the experience now watching your film twice where I just feel like the comparison doesn't quite fit. And I think that sometimes we, when we're talking about content, there's um, films can sometimes be censored or be boycotted without, an engagement of what is actually, how is it being presented, and that's where I want to get into that formal techniques that you've used in how you've represented this violence. Because I think it's really important to say, it may be seemingly about violence. I don't. I think actually the film is about something much greater than that. No,
1: I always say, I always say violence is the reason for the film. It's absolutely not its subject. Yeah, there's that's no, a great way to no, there's, capture there's, it. There's no violence in the film. No, whatsoever, <laughs> at <laughs> all. And in fact, the film's actually very careful about how it deals with the. With the subject matter mm. of violence I just think there'd be an unconscionable way of making this film. Mm. It wouldn't be hard to make a film that that gave the audience a feeling of profound tension um, by you know um, by leaning into some of those more violent or graphic elements. I've no interest in doing that to an audience. Mm. I've no interest in really experiencing that um, as as an audience member. And Justin and I have talked about this mm. before. Um, about the intention of these two films. And I think they're very different films, but I think both of them absolutely have a right to exist. I think that was one of the things for me about seeing Nitram, which is a film that I was really profoundly impressed by. But I I don't know if I've ever walked out of a film so shaken. Yeah. I was yeah. I was shattered. And my family was actually at Port Arthur three days before that massacre. I was there. We were there on a family holiday. Oh, wow. And we got on the spirit of Tasmania and left. And when we arrived in Melbourne, it was the front page of every paper was Massacre yeah, at Port Arthur. And we, we'd wow. literally just been there. Yeah. um, it, it, That felt strangely um, close. I think yeah. I was 12 years old at the time um, mm. or something like that. Um, yeah, I would have been. But, you know, it was the, the decisions that were made about how to deal with the subject matter were made before writing began. Um, mm. When I embarked on this film, I said very early on, even when I just started reading the material, um, that, that I knew there would be no representation of that victim. There would be no representation of any violence whatsoever. And when I say no representation, that victim, I mean, I don't even mean a a face on a milk carton or anything like that. I wanted to build the film around an absence and I wanted to call on everyone who worked with me and, in fact, on the audiences who come to see it too to say, what's that thing that you care about most? Mm. Who's that person that you – or those people that you just love and that mean the world to you? Because – you know, as I said, this, this fact of violence just keeps restating itself. And when I was sitting out to write this film, you know, I grew up in Fitzroy North, my whole family lives in this area. And around the time that I was writing this, there were this whole series of acts of violence against women in the inner north of Melbourne. Yeah. yeah Jill Maher and yeah. Eurydice Dixon, I am yeah. Asway, a whole you know, and mm. it just shook the communities so profoundly. And the anger was so palpable, the rage, but also the empathy for those people, for their families. And really when incidences like this happen, in every state has its versions of, mm. of these sort of um, acts of violence that you just can't even name, you know, the mm. unnameable kind of violence. So you're not going to look for a motive. The motive is irrelevant, um, yeah. really.
0: And it's important to say your film actually isn't concerned with motive not at, at all. all. Yeah. Not at
1: all. Um It's not interested in the psychology of that perpetrator or why they would do something um, Mm. like that. But they shape the society. They shape our feelings of safety and that sort of thing. So I knew really early on that I wasn't going to name that victim. I was never going to represent the family. There was never going to be any representation of violence because I felt I had no right to represent that child. And any version that I created of that child was only going to diminish them and all their extraordinary potentiality and the love that was there for them. And I couldn't presume to know anything of what that family went through or people who lose people go through. Mm. What I was interested in is these professionals who, who never meet those strangers – who, who never know them but devote years of their life and their mental and physical health to creating resolution, mm-hmm. to finding resolution, to getting closure for them. And, you know, that stranger of the title, The Stranger, yeah. could as much refer to the perpetrator, which is a kind of archetypal idea of the stranger, that figure out there in the darkness yeah. waiting to visit harm on us. Or it could be the victim.
0: Mm-hmm. Or it could be the
1: people who cared for them. Or it could be mm-hmm. our central character, Mark, um, whose name we never actually learn.
0: Yeah, I actually was thinking about that, watching it the second time round. There's yeah. so many formal decisions and and um, narrative decisions that you've made in The Stranger that watching it a second time round um, and perhaps knowing, having the comfort of, okay, I'm not going to see something really horrific on screen. Yeah. and I, It's interesting because I say I'm not going to see something horrific on screen. I felt uh, your film is very visceral and it's, it's more of a psychological... Heartbreak, if you could phrase it like that, of what you feel and the enormity. Of but, it's this weight.
1: but it's a film that's connected by empathy.
0: Mm. And I think
1: that tension is about empathy mm. under stress, actually. Yeah. Um, and it makes the audience active. You talked about breath at the beginning of the yeah. film before. Those sorts of formal decisions are, are things like that that are made very, very early very early on about how people are going to be physically immersed in it, how they're going to engage in it, and how it's going to reveal itself because it does reveal itself quite slowly.
0: Yeah.
1: The The unique thing about this story, and I don't think it's giving it's giving too much away to say, you know, it inverts the whole paradigm of an undercover film. Most undercover films are about one individual at terrible risk in a big threatening organisation that's going to cause them harm. Mm. And here we have up to 50 undercover operatives all working to entrap one perpetrator. And their threat is not physical. Their threat mm. is not physical to those around them because, you know, he, he may well be a, a coward when it comes to adults. Mm. Um You know, but the threat is not an immediate physical threat. It's more about what it psychologically represents to have to be that close to that person. And the way it's, he makes his way into Mark's subconscious and into his inner life and, and into his, um, into his dreams Mm. and so much of this film takes place in dreams you know you're looking for these unifying elements that can bring that can bring an audience in because i wanted to make a film that on one hand was highly structural that was a sophisticated really structured um, psychological thriller um, and that was satisfying as a large piece of narrative that made you active to try to unpack and understand this film and on the other hand this deep piece of psychological portraiture Mm. because I felt like I hadn't seen those two things paired truthfully to take you really deeply into someone's mind and then to connect the two with this almost forensic documentary language actually to use a language that gives you the eyes of a detective which is what documentaries do Mm. so you're being made physically active with breath with placement with the subjective Mm. psychology of that main character you're made active trying to figure out the structure of the film and you're also made active as a kind of detective because I don't like to be a passive viewer
0: Mm. I don't like to
1: have things spoon fed to me um, and I don't You know, even though I do love films that take me away and transport me to other lands completely, Mm. um, I also want to be asked tough questions and have to orientate myself with that and think think deeply about those questions. And you know, when you live in Australia, and people often ask, like, why is our cinema so dark? (laughs) Uh, but you'd also yeah. go, why is our literature so dark? Yeah. Why is our music often so dark? Why is our visual art so dark? Yeah. And I think it's because we live in a country that's unreconciled about its history of violence. Oh,
0: 100%. And actually that's something I would love to um, dive into in a bit more detail. I just want to remind listeners that they are tuned in to Triple R and this is Primal Screen and I'm chatting now with the writer and director of The Stranger, Thomas M. Wright. Um Just on that, I'm really curious with how The Stranger is positioned within national cinema. You're right, we do get um, told Australian cinema is dark, but more more specifically... It is dominated often by this representation of violent white men, and I think you're right. It has to do with our unresolved past, um, the colonial violence that surfaces today. Yep. Um, yeah, a, lands- or-
1: a landscape that's marked by violence. Yeah. We, we we know it. We can intuit yeah. it. But we don't know how to. We don't know quite how to unpack it. We don't yeah. have the tools to to comprehend it.
0: And yeah. I think the point you made before that some of the um, inspiration sounds like the wrong word, but some of the um, grounding as to what drew you into this project and provided um, a reference point was some of the violence against women. And we live in a nation where um, there are a startling number of women affected by intimate partner violence every day. I'm just curious with how you see your work in relation to Australian cinema.
1: Oh, I think, you know... Acute Misfortune and The Stranger are very different films. Mm. I mean, Acute Misfortune essentially becomes a a portrait of intimate partner violence, actually, in some respect. Um, It's about a a professional relationship that descends into an abusive relationship. Mm. It's a very complex relationship and a story really about a relationship based on theft. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very nuanced film about how people learn to be, I think. Um, It's a film about how family and society and culture inform us and create almost personas for us to step into. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the culture of journalism, because Acute Misfortune, for people who don't know, is a story about a relationship between a young journalist who's tasked with writing the biography of a famous visual artist. It's a true mm-hmm. story. Um, that There's certain cultural space that's created to accommodate those people and certain things that are rewarded, certain behaviours, mm-hmm. insights, types of intelligence that will... Fit that person to that profession, mm. um, and it's a and I think it's a complex film about the 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 ethics of of that. Mm. Um, the Stranger is really much more primal. Mm. The Stranger is about yeah. fundamental questions of of good and evil, um, violence and order. You know, meaning and meaninglessness, and um, because you're dealing with a question at the centre of the film that's essentially unknowable. Um, and and a violence that's unnameable. Um, So I'm aware that, you know, The Stranger probably more directly is part of a whole lineage of Australian crime cinema, but I think it sits outside a lot of that work in its intentions. But it's also important to remember that 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 body of work, that we tend to just sort of lump in because of its tonality maybe, its colours, certain sounds, score elements... It's actually an extraordinarily diverse Mm -hmm. body of films. Like when you think about something like The Boys or Nitram, where you could certainly see some alignments. um, You go to a film like even Snowtown I find is a profoundly different film because that film can only exist because of a very strong social conscience. That's a group of people who are so othered, Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: maligned, so outside the society that they would rather trust this madman um, than the police, than go Mm -hmm. to the police. Because, you know, those, those crimes were committed when a whole number of people knew knew what was happening. Mm. And that's, that's one of the features of what happened there in that particular mm. instance. But then you go and look at a film like Ghosts of the Civil Dead or Chopper. I mean, yeah. they're barely even the same genre. <laughs> so it's actually a really yeah. diverse – I think it's a really diverse um, body of films. Um, with The Stranger, you know, it, it, as I've said, you know, this is a film where violence was not the subject of this film. Its subject was really trying to make meaning when mm. when violence threatens to render everything meaningless. It begins in the wake of an act of violence, rather than a lot of those films end with a kind of climactic, emphatic final act of violence, which is often off camera. Actually, yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
1: and here we begin after that, and um, and it's an attempt to, to find some resolution and and um, and closure.
0: Earlier we were speaking about um, well, kind of all things, really, but um, I did mention uh, we were talking, focusing mainly on your newest film, The Stranger. I'm just going to play a clip because um, people may not yet have been able to see it either. It has been at the cinemas, but um, you may not have caught it at MIF. So here is a clip. The clip I'm about to play is uh, the two leads, Henry and uh, Mark. Just as a heads up, this is um... – <laughs> probably the most how would we phrase it it's got a lot of swearing it's got a lot of swearing yeah this is the most uh, serious language warning I, I think i've ever had to give so prepare yourself
1: you know, when i was a kid i used to ride the cane trains all the fucking time out of my fucking head it was. i never felt more free until now, mate.
0: I reckon this is a fucking real. Dreams are made of. You know, Paul. When I first met him, I didn't really fucking trust him. I didn't lose it.
1: Fucking reporter or something, you know. Fucking questions
0: he was asking. I can't, couldn't be a reporter. I can hardly fucking read. It's true. He's a fucking dumb dummy. There's also some lovely sounds of uh, lobster being cracked open.
1: Yeah, and the wind. I was yeah. listening to the wind through the whole thing, actually. Yeah. Um, as you were playing that.
0: I, when I saw that scene, um, which is from The Stranger, I... <laughs> I was like, oh, that's definitely a WA beach. But then I looked through your shooting locations. Was it in Adelaide?
1: It's a, we, the entire <laughs> film was pretty much shot in South Australia because yeah. we, needed to, we needed to find a location that would double for both um, mm. Perth and the terrain outside Perth and Queensland as well.
0: Yeah, well, so you fooled we, me and I'm from Perth. And right. I was like, surely that's a Western Australian beach.
1: We, that, that white sand <laughs> yeah. that white sand up there is, is such a such a strong marker. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we had to find a beach that kind of looked and, and – um, Felt like that.
0: It, yeah, I can confirm. Very, <laughs>
1: quite de- very realistic. Quite desolate, really. When you yeah. have stretches of coastline that are that, are that long, and you know, a, a lot of the film takes place in these kind of badlands. Um, and part of that's just um, necessitated by the operation, because mm. in order to 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 entrap someone like this. Um, in order to work with that suspect, they need to keep him out of populous areas. So always they have him in these kind of remote, desolate places because they can't risk him being around civilian populations.
0: Right. That's yeah. so interesting. And I I feel like the landscape, I mean, it's such a cliche to say the landscape's a character, but I meant to, I mean it more in the sense of you you actually have a, um, your cinematographer, uh, Sam, Sam Chipplin. Has these beautiful aerial shots where you are tracking over landscape. And you mentioned before, you touched upon um, the dreams that Mark has, or I think more accurately, nightmares that become very much embedded into the film's narrative. And that line between is this a dream, is this real, is definitely raised. But also the way in which there's this uh, recurring visual motif of a particular part of landscape. Um, which seems to contrast so much with this beach scene. Um, Yeah, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting how, and it has a very haunting quality to it when we do have these, um, you know the scene, I mean, of the... The mountains. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean,
1: we use this mountain, kind of there's almost this monolith that that, um, was always written that way to begin with, tracking toward this enormous monolith, and it had to do with that conversation that we were having before about, Landscape holding on to memory mm. landscape landscape outlasting us as, as well and and hiding things about about who we are about human nature and really there was something that felt um, timeless and kind of um, ineffable and larger than human life about mm. about about that image. But listening to that listening to that scene just then, I mean it might just be me. But that sounds dreamlike to me. It feels dreamlike to me. There's something about the pacing of it, the steadiness, something about this insistent almost like heartbeat that's behind it and this feeling of wind that's that's almost suspended. And that's actually something that we were going for with all, with all of our cinematic elements. You know, mm. you're, you're writing with, with sort of smoke when you're making the film. You're shepherding all these intangible elements into a feeling but that scene has such a strong feeling to me mm. of taking me somewhere else and really the film does become a dual portrait of one character who is in a dream and, a, and another character who's in a nightmare
0: yeah um
1: but they're yeah. both in an internal internalized kind of you know um a landscape they can't touch yeah
0: and they're both lost yeah. in it and and just on that that i a uh, sense of duality between these these two men at the center um i think it was in a recent article that i and I hadn't quite clocked it initially, but the poster for the film, yeah. The Stranger, of course, is a composite of Joel Edgerton's face with Sean with Harris's. Yeah. It's quite uncanny. And I, I,
1: actually, I actually you know, designed that poster and the, tra- and the trailer for the film oh, as well. Amazing. The trailer, which is built around breath and the poster, which is built around that central duality, actually, mm. which is quite literally there's a stranger, there's someone you can't. You don't recognise there because it is this composite of these yeah. two people, and the entire film is built around these sort of dualities. Mm. You've got two central characters with two absolutely distinct sides of them, two separate parts of the operation, two separate film languages, two separate landscapes, yeah. you know, two two separate um, parallel narratives that are actually revealed to be parallel timelines, which is in itself a kind of duality. Yeah, and and then they come colliding together as the film begins to build in momentum and all the strings start to thread together and it, mm. and it, and it heads toward this kind of propulsive um, conclusion.
0: And something else, and I, I was hoping to capture that in, in that clip that I played, but the homosociality between these two men, um, I think it's really interesting because they have this, um, you know, there is this uneasy bond. They're kind of, uh, like you said, one's in a dream, one's in a nightmare. I think that's perfect because... Um, it's such a, they think that they're getting closer and definitely the, as far as proximity to um, one another, they are getting closer, but it's obviously um, a the, lot more complicated yeah. than that.
1: <laughs> the, the whole mandate of the film is is basically closeness, but mm. they have to, from both sides of this narrative, they have to mirror one another, mm. turn into one another. They start to look more and more like one another and feel more and more like one another until they're actually Crossing over into one another's, they're crossing over one another's psychic barriers through that kind of blood ba- brain barrier, and yeah. and becoming a, a, a part of them that that, that they can't um, that they can't shake.
0: And I think Mark at some point even refers to Henry as his brother, right?
1: He refers to him as his brother multiple yeah. times, and he also yeah. and he also begins to you know we talked about this dream language of the film, but Henry makes himself manifest in in Mark's. Um, in Mark's dreams and his mm. subconscious and even in his reflection of him, of himself. Mm. And the question there is really about these these marks in a person like the marks in a landscape, you know, mm. that how, do you, how do you decode them and unpack them after the fact? Can he return? Can that character come back at the end? And so much of the film is built around this um, central relationship that he has at home yeah. with his own child uh, and his own home life. And, um, and and how, how will that resolve, how will this, this experience... Because, you know, in this av- undercover operation and operations like it, um, you can be talking about over six, seven, eight, nine months day-to-day with that, with that suspect, and this technique is only used in the most extreme cases and only mm. as a last resort,
0: mm. because
1: what you're dealing with here in this film is a situation where there's no evidence, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever you're relying on whatever information you can get through this operation. Um, so that needs to be legally watertight, completely immersive, um, and the stakes are just so high because if this doesn't work, there is nothing else left that, that, that uh, law enforcement can, can, can apply here.
0: Yeah, interest. and I, I think the, there are parts in this film in which that, that is explained um, in a – and you, I feel like the police force in general or the investigation unit, there's lots of different characters as well that kind of allow for that complexity of how this would play out in a courtroom to, to kind of be explored. Yeah. Um, just going back, though, to, to that sort of this relationship between the two men, I just find it interesting because in both your directorial feature-length debut, Acute Misfortune, and now in The Stranger, you have two men with an uneasy bond at the centre. And I mentioned the word homosociality before, which, you know, is this sort of social relationship between men and, and it's often, um, you know, a mechanism that fosters and maintains this um masculinity. Mm. I'm interested, what do you think it is about that dynamic that draws you to presenting these kind of sometimes fraught male friendships on screen? And friendships maybe is not quite the right phrase here. I think you mentioned before toxic yeah, relationships. Personally,
1: I find human relationships pretty complex. Mm. I can find them um, pretty difficult. And, you know, like I, I think, you know, for me, honestly, you know, it's not something I've talked about an awful lot, but, you know, like I've had my own struggles with Mental health, and with and with various other things from life, and that was a big part of my upbringing as mm. well. Like it was a part of my growing up. Was a lot of um, pretty pretty ominous close relationships, maybe mm. with with people in my in my early years that I think made manifest there, as well as my own relationship with trauma and what it mm. is to come through um, trauma, which is my own story. It's certainly not at the forefront of. The stranger, but it's very much there as a touchstone, and very much there as something that becomes a part of what's informing the subjective language of those films and the space Mm. that you're bringing an audience um, into. Well, I I can't claim full credit for the for the through line either, because as I said, you know, you know, it's something that I find myself really um, quite fluent with talking about. But as I said, Joel saw a cute misfortune also, and uh, saw an alignment with this central relationship. But you know, I made that the subject of the film too. So, to be honest, I don't know. My answer in short is: shout is out why to Joel. Do I, Why do I write about why why write about these appalling relationships, um, very fraught relationships but between people? I'm I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Mm. It's maybe something that I'll need to re- re- reflect on um, more in the future. But you know, there. They're, they're they're very different relationships, but they but they truly they are really they're really imbalanced relationships at the centre of, of both yeah. these and that sustain a lot of um, conflict for both sides. Yeah,
0: and, and a lot of um, misrepresentation on both sides and artifice. yeah, um, yeah, perfor- yeah. almost like yeah. a performance
1: a performance of yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And a massive dissonance between who you are on the inside and who you are on the outside.
0: Absolutely. Um, for listeners who have just tuned in, uh, this is Primal Screen on Triple R, and I'm speaking with writer and director Thomas M. Wright. We have been talking uh, a lot of things tonight, haven't we? <laughs> we
1: have covered a lot of ground.
0: We have. Um, I feel like there is so much to unpack in your work, both with The Stranger and uh, Cute Misfortune. Um, I do want to just while we've got you, um, I'm so fascinated by the casting decisions for both these films. Um, you mentioned that Joel Joel Edgerton was you know a big creative force in terms of bringing you to this material and and kind of basically selling me on this idea of, of presenting pre- uh, presenting this on screen. Um, I'm I'm really curious to know about yeah the casting for both films. i um, I think you've just got such an amazing yeah, selection of actors involved with both. Look,
1: I, I, I'll go to Acute Misfortune mm, first, really quickly. Yeah, um, Daniel Henshaw, who played Adam Cullen in um, in Acute Misfortune, actually sent me a photo the other day because he was away from home and his little boy had pulled a bookshelf, a book off the bookshelf, and showed it to his mum. And his mum said, "Who's that on the book?" And um, he said, "It's Daddy," and it was a picture of Adam Cullen. <laughs> So that's that's why Dan, you know, I yeah. mean, no, there was a there's a bigger alignment than just the visual, but there was no yeah. one else who was ever going to play Adam Cullen. Dan was absolutely, you know, he's, born to play that oh, part, and absolutely. he's he's absolutely <laughs> extraordinary in it. And then young Toby Wallace, who's just so gifted. Um, yeah. I mean, Toby's undeniable. It's not um, um, as is Dan, but with but with Toby, it was just, you know, I mean, we we saw hundreds and hundreds of kids to play. Eric Jensen um, in that film, who you know is a journalist here in Melbourne and the founder and yeah. editor of the Saturday Paper. Um, and Toby's very different to Eric. He's about um, he's about a half foot taller, if not more, and he's very you know big, strong physical presence. Um, and strange he's got a
0: tenderness, doesn't he? <laughs> he does have an extraordinary
1: yeah. tenderness and an extraordinary flexibility, and there was something inside that that mirrored. Um, Eric essentially but you know Toby went on to win the Marcello Mastroianni award at Venice um, for best young actor next year he's about to play the lead in a massive film that I'm sure I can't talk about yet (laughs) Um, but no he's just flying and actually Dan for that matter is shooting something you know this is a tricky thing about people when they're working at really high levels you can't talk about what they're working on (laughs) I can say Dan's working on something they're both working on things that are absolutely enormous um, right now Joel with the stranger. I mean, Joel was my partner on this film. Joel yeah. and I worked together. Joel and I just talk all the time. We were there as um, one another's sort of constants through yeah. this process. We, we made the film side by side. Um, Joel obviously brought me on board um, to adapt this material. Um, he plays the main part. He's one of the producers in the film. He prepared for almost two and a half years to oh play this God. part. And the depth of research that was there with this film, you know, we will we will actually never be able to talk about um, how yeah. this film was researched. But I can say that it was absolutely exhaustive and it was exacting. Yeah. When I when I actually just on a side note, when I wrote this film, I I researched full time for six months, about ten hours a day, mostly seven days a week. Wow! Um, and just to because I felt I couldn't write this film as a as a layperson, and um, and when I finished it, I was actually um, I. I I finished that six months of research and then I wrote the film in six days and I was hospitalised the, the next day, actually. And I don't think I even realised the toll it was actually taking on my yeah. body. I was hospitalised with pneumonia and I couldn't walk. I just oh my, my Everything collapsed. But um, Joel was there to support me through that entire yeah. process. He took this on so deeply. Um, through the process of making this film, he also found out he was going to be a father. So it wow. became incredibly personal for yeah. us. He also played... You know, the father of my son Cormac of in real course, life, yes, my real son, um, Sean Harris. Really, I mean, Sean's work speaks for itself. I think this. I, I mean, you know, as we've talked about, this is a film with no violence in it mm. whatsoever. But I don't. I, I can barely think of a, another performance that's as as deeply discomforting. It yes. gets it gets under your skin in such an extraordinary way. And I, I, I said that I almost wanted him to feel cancerous, you know, like Mm. someone just by being in contact with that you were afraid that he was going to affect you.
0: And that was what was great about rewatching the stranger last night was there's a scene in which one of the more senior investigators, um, actually seems, um, frightened by, by Sean Harris on screen, not Sean Harris, (laughs) Henry, Henry on screen. And I thought that was a beautiful moment because you are kind of petrified of him, but it's a very like, it's a it's something under, you're it's right, under your skin. Under, it's
1: something underneath it. Yeah. And, you know, with Sean. Sean's from, from elsewhere. You know, he's an outsider. He's a British actor and one of the, mm. flat out, one of the strongest actors working in English language cinema yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and I came across his work watching films like 24 Hour Party People, where he played Ian <laughs> Curtis. <film>.
0: Yes. <laughs> um,
1: but, but you know, as Southcliffe, which he won a BAFTA mm. for Best Actor for, um, a miniseries. Um, I, I wanted someone who didn't feel like they were from here, where there was an uncanny feeling about his presence here. And again, mm. that had to do with all of these. All of these things hinge on this central feeling that you want the film to have. And part of it was this dream-like, slightly unreal Mm. quality that he feels familiar but inherently completely unfamiliar at once. You can't quite get a handle on him. And Sean just has an extraordinarily fine, very unusual, very slippery intelligence. He's a a working-class kid from the mid-north coast of England, um, his father was a shop steward on the docks. He grew up in, in working class England in the nineteen seventies. It's a very different background mm. to bring to this environment. But it had a it, he, he has a toughness and a kind of mental elasticity mm. that I just thought was you you just couldn't you couldn't deny. And actually Joel and Sean have actually done three films together. Now they yeah, all, they also acted right. in David Michaud's The King yeah. and in David Lowry's um, Green Knight as well. But but here it's a it's a it's a whole other thing. I don't think they're even actually on camera together in The Green Knight, but um in this film, we knew it was going to be the two of them, and they had to be, um, th- they had to push one another and drag one another down and deeper and deeper into this material. And yeah. It was a very tough, it was a very tough shoot, actually, because of the tension that was to required to sustain between us all. Joel actually commented just recently that it was the quietest film he's act- ever actually worked on. The quietest. Oh, uh, you could hear a pin drop sometimes wow. on set, which is very different, difficult when you're coordinating, you know that many people all the time. With the number of scenes we had to shoot too, there's mm. almost 250 scenes in this film and it was only a seven-and-a-half-week mm. shoot. So it's, um, it was a tough shooting environment.
0: I, I cannot believe that, um, you know, the two years of research, uh, two years of, of sinking into this character for Joel and yeah. and also Sean Harris's uh, as well. Yeah, Sean things, was over a year yeah. of preparation. Yeah, and then you're sitting with this research for, for six months, right? It's so heavy to sit with that. Um, a tremendous uh, effort. I, I feel like there are so many <laughs> aspects of this film I want to unpick a bit further, um, but I am mindful of the time. Thomas M. Wright has been joining me tonight, um, who is obviously the writer and director and producer of A Keep Misfortune Fortune and the writer and director of The Stranger. We wanted to talk about music We could talk about music for another hour. We could talk about music for another hour, but just very
1: briefly, I was just saying, I haven't listened to that track for a long time. I can see Mm. all the images from the film so clearly in my mind and Ev's brilliant work um, on that score. It's a really unique um, score and it was so important to me that there was a voice from outside the film that proposed Mm. a kind of different reality,
0: Mm. an alternative,
1: but why weren't we we turning the camera over there? Why wasn't there the possibility to go there? We kept getting dragged down... um, by the film where the strange is a very different prospect this the soundtracks by oliver coates brilliant british cellist who featured yes. as the soloist on mika levi's under the skin scores worked very um uh, for a long time with johnny greenwood and with radiohead featured an awful lot on moonshape pool and um, i'd been listening to ollie's work for years, and I wanted to have physical sound elements. You talked about that mountain mm. earlier, and that mountain was actually also accompanied by a Melbourne percussionist by his work, a guy called Matthias um, which is a big percussion machine um, that he actually built to create oh that God. very strange. But I wanted all of those yeah. sounds to be to be physical, yeah. uh, strongly physical, and because, as we said, I wanted the stranger to be a. A a really profoundly physical experience.
0: And we touched a bit on proximity tonight, uh, proximity to the abject violence that is not depicted on screen. But I think in the sound, um, in the soundscape, you have these moments that sound like a moth getting a bit too close to the flame. I don't know if that actually is what I'm hearing. That's that's Matthias's
1: Annika machine oh. that he built that's creating that sound and when i heard that sound that that machine could create mm. i knew that was the physical thing that i that i needed to sit outside the film to to give us that sense of a a, a physical reality existing yeah. just outside the borders but also as we said echoing echoing back in in time as well
0: yeah oh there is um yeah, so much to talk about and I um, definitely was found myself immersed in The Stranger and I hope that listeners who have enjoyed tonight's uh, deep dive, actually the first time I've ever done this on Primal Screen, but um, I hope you do check out The Stranger. It is currently playing at local and independent cinemas and it's going to be available to stream on Netflix later this month. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me.